Luke chapter 2, the Christmas story. Luke chapter 2. I'll give you a moment to, to get there. All right, we ready? All right, Luke chapter 2, you, you probably have this memorized already, but let's read through it because it will be the text from which we will be der deriving this morning's message. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all of the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which was called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and lied him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And as the story continues, as we'll kind of paraphrase as we go through that, that on the same night, shepherds were out in the field and they were approached and surprised by an angel who happened to be really shiny and got them off guard and they were afraid, and rightfully so. I do believe if an angel just appears to me out in the middle of nowhere, I'm probably going to be afraid. But the message that he was bringing was something that would give them great peace. He says, don't be afraid because I bring to you good news of great joy. For this day in the city of David, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord, has been born unto you. He says, this will be a sign you will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And then all of a sudden he was joined by a bunch of other shiny people, the angels, the heavenly host. And they began to sing and to praise glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace and goodwill toward men. And then they disappeared. The shepherds looking back and forth at one another. Can you imagine the eye contact after that situation happened? Did we really just see what we thought? Well, in case they're telling us the truth, and in case we didn't just imagine this, let's go check it out. So they made haste, and they went into the city, and there they found the boy, the baby boy, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger there with Mary and Joseph. And often my, my mind kind of wonders the conversations that may have taken place between the shepherds and Mary and Joseph, and I may have mentioned this, you know, last year in one of the sermons over Christmas, but I just have to imagine them kind of comparing stories. You know, when they, they come up and said, this is, is this the Savior, the Christ? And they say, yes, well, this is funny because an angel appeared to us and told us that we would find him here. And then Joseph was like, yeah, an angel came to me too. And then Mary was like, yeah, me too. So they all had an angel story, and then can you imagine the conversations that took place over the, over the Savior there in the manger, in the barn? And then they went about telling everybody, and the people marveled at what was saying, as what they were saying, and they went back to their, to their fields, um, praising and glorifying God that night. What an amazing event that took place, you know, 2,000 years ago. You know, as we read the story of Christmas, you know, we kind of get removed and it kind of becomes second nature to us. But what we just read and went over was an actual historical event that took place. Jesus came to our world. He became flesh. He dwelt among us. And we beheld the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He came to us. What an, an event to celebrate, folks. This Christmas season, we have 
plenty of reason to celebrate because a Savior who is Christ the Lord has come to save his people from their sins. But what I want to focus on this morning is a question. We see in verse 7 that she brought forth her firstborn child, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger. Obviously, when you lay someone in a manger, the assumption is that they are living or that he was born in a barn, right? And yes, see, he was. Probably the, the daily equivalent to that. And you can get on Google and people will argue, well, it wasn't a barn, it wasn't a stable, it was a cave. Okay, that, that may be true. But the closest thing that we can relate to this is being born in a barn. There was the, the animals were stored there. They were kept at bay there. They ate there. They probably went to the bathroom there. So you can imagine the situation in which the, in the condition that Jesus came into our world. You know, I didn't grow up on a farm. How many of you grew up on a farm? Okay, two. Is that, is that all two? Okay, okay, three, three and a half, four-ish. Okay, so grew up in a barn. I did not grow up on a farm, nor was I born in a barn. But I have been to many barns. I've actually even milked a cow and I've even wrestled a pig before. But I'm pretty familiar with what a barn looks like. They're smelly, they're dirty, they're not climate controlled. It's not really a place that you just wanna go and hang out. But it's the last place that you would think to want to bring a baby into the world. To give birth to a child, you would say a barn is probably not the best option to, to make this take place. But yet when we read the scripture here and how our Savior, Jesus Christ the Lord, had come into our world, the Lord of heaven and earth, what did just that. He was born in a barn. So what do we make of this? So the question that we're going to kind of ask this morning is, you know, why was Jesus born in a barn? You know, I don't really know the answer to the question maybe specifically, you know, I don't think I can get into God's mind and really just kind of crawl around in there, but there may be a hundred reasons why he chose to come in such a way. Um, but I don't think we'll know all of those reasons, but I think we can derive a few things about God's character and the nature of God and who he is by just looking at how he came into our world. So why was Jesus born in a barn? That's a good question. Well, the simplest answer to that is found in verse 7. Why was he laid in a manger? There's no room anywhere else, right? This is the only place that was available for them to go. And I would assume that Joseph, um, probably being a wise enough man to know that he wouldn't have planned for this to happen, you know, um, that he would have looked at other different um, areas, different places to go. But however, the, whenever the days were accomplished that she would be delivered, they were in a place where, uh, where animals were. They were in a barn. So why was Jesus born in a barn. But because God chose to enter in his creation this way, I believe there's some things that we can learn about God, and let's take a look at what they are. The first thing is, we kind of hit on it, is that there was, it was the only place available to them. It was the only place where he was welcomed whenever it was time for his birth. It's the only place that Mary and Joseph could find, and obviously nobody was willing to give up their place for them. I'm sure they saw them walking around and looking for a place, but this was the only place that they were welcomed to, to use was the barn. Now, Jesus, he could have been born in the finest mansion on the highest hilltop that there ever was. But that was not made available to him. That was not made available to Mary and Joseph. And the point that I want us to understand is that Jesus goes where he is welcomed. Jesus goes where he is 
wanted. Now, not to confuse the character and nature of God in that He is omnipresent and that He is everywhere, because He is. I mean, He is everywhere. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. All of these things about God is true, but He goes where He is welcomed and wanted and invited. And we see a couple of different ways in, that this is illustrated in the Gospels. We see in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 14, and how he instructed his disciples to, to, um, to, uh, to react to um, the, whatever the people would either become hostile or disrespectful to the word. In Matthew chapter 10 and verse 14, it says, and, who will, and whoever will not receive nor hear your words, depart from them in that house and city and shake the dust off of your feet when, when you leave. It wasn't a matter of forcing something on someone and trying to, to, um, to drive this in. Present the good news. Present the word. If it is received, stay. If not, depart and shake the dust off of your feet and keep moving forward. But to make this point, you know, as far as like, you know, I'm making the statement that God goes where he is welcome, that God goes where he wants. I'm going to ask you a question. Where does a 600-pound gorilla go? wherever he wants. Absolutely. You know, they say that a full, that a full matured male gorilla can lift over 2,000 pounds of dead weight. That's a lot of weight. All right, the strongest deadlift world record to date is 1,100 pounds. Isn't that correct, son? 1,100 pounds? Yeah, he watches those things. Yeah, so 1,100 pounds, and that is the strongest human, but this is the average gorilla we're talking about, 2,000 pounds, and he can crack open a coconut like it's an egg. So if there's a gorilla standing between me and something else that I want, I'm probably not going to get it. So yeah, a gorilla goes wherever he wants to go. He's a very powerful creature, and very few things have the ability to, to sway him in a way that he does not want to go. But whenever we ask the question, you know, well, where does Jesus go? You might think that it's exactly the same question because isn't Jesus much more powerful than a gorilla? Absolutely he is. But where does he go? Does he get to go everywhere he wants to go? That's the question. I believe the scripture shows us otherwise, that God, that he chooses to go where he is welcomed. In Matthew chapter 23 and verse 37, as his heart was breaking over his people, he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the ones who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Jesus, his heart was breaking. He wanted his people to be gathered together, but they were not willing. They were rejecting him as the Messiah. We also see in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, this isn't a salvation message, but it illustrates the character of God in this, in this instance. It says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. So, you know, we, we have a Savior. We have a great God and Creator. He's, notice He's not kicking the door down and pushing you aside and moving everything around that He wants. He's, he's humbly, meekfully knocking on the door. And if you will hear His voice and open the door, He will come in. See, so God has chosen to appeal to our hearts through the gospel. And if you will hear and receive the message of the gospel, then he will come in and he will dwell within you. He will forgive your sins and grant eternal life to those who are willing to do so. 
I mean, you kind of think about this. Isn't that a beautiful picture? The great God and creator, Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, humbly asking us to receive him. He does not force himself on anyone. He's too loving for that, to force you into his presence against your will. He's given you the, the wonderful gift of free choice. And if you, will, if you will receive him, he will gladly come and receive you. He does not force himself on anyone, but he goes to the hearts of those people who welcome him in that. So why was Jesus born in a barn? It was a place where he was welcome. It was the only place available. And the question is, is have you opened your heart's door to him and let him in as he is sitting outside knocking? Secondly, why was Jesus born in a barn? There we go. Well, I gave away the third point. You're not supposed to see that. All right. You know something? God has absolutely nothing to prove. He's got absolutely nothing to prove. Jesus is not like any other royalty that we have ever seen or even heard of. You know, kings come with their great entourages and they're accompanied by their pageantries and their demands. But Jesus is not like that. You know, the rock stars of the day and the movie stars today, they, they go around flashing everything as if they have something to prove driving around in their Ferraris, their Lamborghinis, their McLaren F1s, their Bugattis, walking around their diamond-crusted um, shoes, trying to show off everything that they, that they have. I'm not against people having those things if God has blessed them in such a way. But God has nothing to prove. He has no reason to flaunt what he has. And my question is, who in the world would buy diamond-encrusted shoes if there's nobody to walk in front of? I'm just, I mean, they, they can't be comfortable. But however, Jesus was not like other kings. Jesus was born in a stable to humble, poor Jewish parents, and with his only visitors that night were shepherds from the field. And I believe that God is showing us something about his character, showing us something about himself, and nothing about our God is like the kings of the earth. And those who are into appearances and the image that they carry, our God is full of humility and meekness. Now, don't, don't misunderstand humility and meekness. Humility is not timidity. It's not being timid. A lot of times being humble is one of the most bold things that you can possibly do. And don't mistake meekness for weakness either. Meekness is power under control. Jesus was all-powerful and is all-powerful, all-knowing in, in his wisdom and everything. But he's yet meek, very in control. Now, this is what Charles Spurgeon said about Jesus, the king of kings, in comparison to the kings of this earth. He said, how could the kings of the earth receive the Lord? He is a prince of peace, and they delight in war. He breaks their bowels and cuts their spears asunder. He burns their war chariots in the fire. How could kings accept the humble Savior? They love grandeur and pomp, and he is all simplicity and meekness. He is a carpenter's son and a fisherman's companion. How can princes find room for the newborn monarch? Why, he teaches us to do unto others as we would have them do unto us. And this, to the kings, they would find it hard to reconcile with their navish tricks of politics and grasping design of ambition. I believe he had a good point there. Yes, Jesus was not like the kings of this world. He had nothing to prove. Also in Zechariah chapter 9, in verse 9, also quoted by 
Matthew in chapter 22, verse 5. We see how he came and made his entrance into Jerusalem. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just having salvation. And he's also described as this, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, a foal of a donkey. What a great entrance, right? Coming in as the king of kings riding on a donkey. Now, the day that Jesus entered into Jerusalem as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, he did so riding on a donkey. Not very grand, not very impressive. It's, kind of, it's almost like foregoing a limousine ride to pedal into town on an old rusty bike. But yet, that's our Savior. Humble and meek. But notice the welcoming crew that he had. Had Jesus employed an image consultant about how he, would to, how he was to enter Jerusalem, they probably would have advised him to take a clue or to take a look at Absalom, the son of David. You know, he rode around the city in chariots pulled with teams of horses and 50 runners. Like modern rock, star, rock stars of today, Absalom believed that the size of the entourage said a lot about the celebrity. But that's not true in Jesus' case. Jesus was not like any other rock star or any other celebrity that flaunts what they have for the attention to be drawn to themselves. But if you don't think so, all you have to do is look at where Jesus was born. He was born in a barn. You can look at the way he lived. He lived without a place to lay his head. And you look at the way he died on a Roman cross, humiliated and naked and beaten. Yes, our Savior is humble and meek, without anything to prove. He didn't need anyone to, to go around and to talk him up. He had no reason to flaunt what he had. And the reason is he's not running for office. We didn't elect the position that he's in, and you certainly can't impeach him. So what does he have to prove? <laughs> he's not going to gain anything by getting your praise. But however, he has he come to offer himself as a sacrifice to you, being born in a barn, living without a place to lay his head, and to die on a cross, to be buried in a borrowed tomb, to, to, resur to be resurrected, to conquer sin and death for all of mankind. Yes, meek and humble. But meekness is not weakness, and humility is not timidity. He is very bold, he is very strong, yet meek, and humble is our Savior. So why was Jesus born in a barn? It was the only place that was available. And two, he had absolutely nothing to prove. Number three, he came as the Lamb of God. To be born in a barn, so where else should a lamb be born? Obviously, we're going to chase this metaphor. He wasn't an actual lamb, but metaphorically, he was the sacrificial lamb of God. And we see this illustrated throughout all of human history. From in the Garden, of, the Garden of Eden, from the time that they sinned against God and they were cast out and they had children, we see where Abel, he brought the lamb from his flock as a sacrifice to the Lord. And here we see a lamb that was sacrificed for one person. And later, as God was preparing to lead his people out of the land of Egypt, we see Moses, he has instructed the people to slay a lamb to smear around the door in order to protect the family members at the Passover. 
a lamb was slayed for a family. And then God gave Israel instruction on the annual day of atonement that one lamb was to be slain for the nation. And we come into the New Testament where we see John the Baptist declaring that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we see the Lamb of God being slain for all of mankind, past, present, and future, shedding his blood on the cross of Calvary and that we all may have the opportunity to repent and trust him as our personal Savior. One very brilliant man was reading through Scripture and he he found that the work of redemption throughout Scripture could be summed up in three different Scriptures. Starting, stating in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 7, this is where Abraham and Isaac were going up to Mount Moriah to offer a sacrifice. And Isaac noticed that there was no lamb for the sacrifice. And he asked the question to his father, Dad, where is the lamb? And we come to our New Testament and we see where John, he declared, Behold the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. The lamb has come. And as he, was, as he died on the cross for our sins, he was buried and resurrected and ascended into heaven. We go into the future in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 11. We see where worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Where is the lamb? Behold, the lamb has come and worthy is the lamb of God. Why was Jesus born in a barn, you ask? It was the only place available. Secondly, he has nothing to prove. He doesn't need a grand, grand entry into our world. He's completely and totally secured and self-sufficient in his being. And lastly, he was a sacrificial lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. These are musicians. They, they come forward. We'll have an opportunity to reflect on the message that we truly have heard this morning. But what can we learn about what we have talked about so far? Well, we learn that Jesus indwells the hearts of those who are willing to respond to the gospel with repentance and faith towards Jesus Christ. That morning today, this invitation is made to you in each and every one of us. Behold, he's standing at the door and knocking. The gospel is the power into salvation upon hearing the gospel of Jesus. If you're willing to open your heart's door by repenting of your sins and trusting in him, he will come in. If you desire for him to come in and you're willing to invite him into your life and to surrender your life to him, he will come and dwell you. And secondly, we learn that he is humble and meek. The great God and creator and redeemer, he has nothing to prove. And lastly, we learn that he comes as a sacrificial lamb of God that was slain to atone for the sins of of the world. This is truly the message of Christmas, folks. Jesus not only was laid in the manger, but he grew up. And he took upon himself the sin of the world. He died in our place. He was buried and he was resurrected from the dead. His birth has very little significance without looking at the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And he is coming back one day. What a glorious day that will be when we see his face. And I'll close with this quote by Malcolm Tolbert. And he was writing an article actually answering this exact same question. Why was Jesus born in a barn? And he says this, Had Jesus been born in a mansion on the hilltop, few people would have felt welcome in his presence. But he was born in a barn. Anyone can go there. 
The lowly shepherds did not hesitate to enter the stable and bow before this child. Then and now, anyone willing to humble himself may come to Jesus. Let's stand and sing. Father, we just